Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part three of my deep dive into the history of video games. We've come a long way from the humble beginnings of the Atari 2600, transitioning from the dimly lit arcades to the cozy comfort of our own living rooms, transforming the gaming landscape in ways we never could have imagined back in 1980. In 1990, the gaming industry was in the throes of a seismic shift, largely due to the rivalry between Nintendo and Sega. Sega's Genesis console, with its superior graphics and processing capabilities, posed a significant challenge to Nintendo's dominance. This led to Nintendo's swift response with the launch of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System escalating the console war. Nintendo was caught unaware by the launch of the Genesis, and the SNES was rushed to market. They never expected Sega's new console to be released so early, didn't expect for it to be so powerful, but mostly didn't expect for it to be so well received, especially not without a mascot to help sell the units. But thankfully for Sega, that didn't matter. Sega's Genesis was more than just a console, it was capable of producing nearly arcade-perfect ports, a feat that was unheard of at the time. This technological prowess, honed in the midst of Sega's arcade race with with Namco was instrumental to the creation of the Genesis. The console's success signaled the beginning of the end for the arcade era, which even still was the gold standard for gaming, generating nearly $10 billion in revenue, while consoles only just broke $1 billion this year. The Genesis also played a pivotal role in the creation of the handheld gaming market. In an attempt to compete with Nintendo's Game Boy, Sega launched its own handheld device, the Game Gear. Despite being rushed to market, the Game Gear, with its full-color, backlit screen and landscape format, was positioned as a technologically superior alternative to the Game Boy. It even had the capability to play Master System games through an adapter. Although it couldn't surpass the Game Boy due to its short battery life, lack of original games, and weak support from Sega, the Game Gear's unique game library and price point gave it an edge over other handheld devices like the Atari Lynx and NEC's Turbo Express. There's an argument you could put a Genesis in this time capsule just for how it proved that it's not Nintendo anymore. And it really was just Nintendo at this time, with Nintendo earning over 88% of the revenue of home consoles and software sales. The console wars of 1990 were not just about rivalry, they were about innovation and transformation. They set the stage for the modern gaming industry, pushing the boundaries of technology and game design. As we look back at this era, we can see how the innovations and rivalries of this time have shaped the immersive gaming experiences we enjoy today. The Genesis, in particular, stands as a testament to Sega's audacity and vision, proving that the gaming industry was no longer just about Nintendo. How have the lessons learned from these epic battles influenced the way we approach gaming today, both as players and creators? Super Mario Bros. 3 took the gaming world by storm, introducing innovative gameplay elements and creating a legacy that continues to influence the industry today. One of the most striking aspects of Super Mario Bros. 3 is its unique stage play-esque aesthetic. It wasn't just a stylistic choice, it was a statement. It was Nintendo's way of saying that video games could be more than just a pastime, they could be a form of art, a performance. The game's levels are designed like stages, with objects 
bolted to the background or suspended by ropes, casting drop shadows as if under stage lights. This theatrical presentation added a layer of immersion to the game, making players feel like they were part of a grand performance. But the game wasn't just about looks, it was about innovation. Super Mario Bros. 3 introduced several elements that would become staples of the Mario series, such as Bowser's children, the Koopalings, and a world map to transition between levels. These additions added depth to the game, creating a more immersive and engaging experience for players. The world map in particular was a game changer. It gave players a sense of progression and achievement as they could see their journey unfold before their eyes. The game also introduced new power-ups, such as the Super Leaf and Tanuki suit, which gave Mario the ability to fly and transform into a statue, respectively. These power-ups added a new layer of strategy to the game, as players had to decide when and how to use them to navigate through the levels. The Tanuki suit in particular has become one of the most iconic power-ups in the Mario series, symbolizing the game's spirit of innovation and creativity. The game's world map was inspired by a map of Japan, with the castle islands in World 3 shaped like the Japanese islands, and the castle in World 8 located where Nintendo's headquarters is in Kyoto. This subtle nod to the real world added a layer of authenticity to the game, making it feel grounded and relatable. The Secret of Monkey Island, a point-and-click adventure game developed by Lucasfilm Games in 1990, brought a fresh wave of humor, creativity, and narrative depth to the industry. The game is filled with witty dialogue, absurd situations, and a unique brand of comedy that was a breath of fresh air in the gaming scene of the time. This humor was not just for laughs, it was an integral part of the game's identity and charm. It gave the game a distinct personality that set it apart from other titles and made it a memorable experience for players. The Secret of Monkey Island tells the story of Guybrush Threepwood, a young man who dreams of becoming a pirate. This narrative setup, while simple, was effective in immersing players in the game's world. It gave players a clear goal and a cast of memorable characters to interact with. This narrative depth was a trendsetter in the industry, showing that video games could tell engaging and complex stories. The Secret of Monkey Island boasted impressive graphics for its time, with detailed environments and expressive character designs. The game's soundtrack, composed by Michael Land, is iconic and instantly recognizable. It perfectly complements the game's atmosphere and enhances the overall experience. These audiovisuals were a testament to the technological advancements of the time and showcased the potential of video games as a medium for artistic expression. The Secret of Monkey Island popularized the point-and-click adventure genre and established a successful franchise that continues to this day. The game's design philosophy, which made the player character's death nearly possible was a revolutionary concept that influenced many future titles. This impact on the industry is a testament to the game's innovation and its enduring appeal. Mega Man 3 saw the debut of Mega Man's trusty robot dog companion, Rush. 
This wasn't just a cute addition, Rush significantly expanded the gameplay possibilities. He could transform into a springboard, a submarine, or a jet, allowing Mega Man to reach new areas and adding a layer of strategy to the level exploration. The mechanic provided players with a depth of strategic gameplay that was rare at that time. Another innovative feature introduced in Mega Man 3 was the slide maneuver. This allowed Mega Man to slide under low barriers and avoid enemy attacks. It was a simple addition, but it had a profound impact on the gameplay. It added a new level of dynamism to the action, making battles more intense and engaging. It also opened up new possibilities for level design, with levels featuring narrow passages that could only be navigated by sliding. Despite the game's success, one aspect that is often overlooked is the story behind its development. Mega Man 3 was developed by Steven Rosner under his company Rosner Labs, and it was the first game in the Mega Man franchise to be released for home computers. However, the game received negative reviews from critics, with many calling it one of the worst PC games ever. Despite this, a sequel titled Mega Man 3 The Robots Are Revolting was released in 1992. This sequel was initially an unrelated game called Eco Man, but High Tech Expressions only agreed to publish it if it was reskinned as a Mega Man game. This story is a fascinating glimpse into the challenges and compromises involved in game development. Wing Commander, released in 1990, was a space combat simulator that combined immersive storytelling, branching narratives, and cutting-edge graphics to create an experience that was unlike anything else available. Wing Commander was set in the year 2654 and featured a multinational cast of pilots from the Terran Confederation, flying missions against the predatory, aggressive Kilrathi, a feline warrior race. The story was not linear, instead it was branching and open-ended, with the player's performance and missions affecting the overall campaign. This was a major departure from the straightforward, level-based narratives that were common in games at the time. It gave players a sense of agency, an immersion that was truly revolutionary. The game was a major step forward for space dogfight games, featuring graphics and audio that invited comparison to the Star Wars films. This was a time when many games were still using simple 2D sprites, so the 3D models and detailed environments of Wing Commander were a sight to behold. The game's visuals were not just impressive on a technical level, they also contributed to the game's immersive storytelling, making players feel like they were truly part of a high-stakes space opera. Despite its success, Wing Commander had a rocky development process. The game was originally going to be called Star Lancer, but the name was changed to avoid confusion with the popular space combat simulator Star Control. The game's voice acting was groundbreaking for its time, featuring full motion video cutscenes with professional actors, which was a rarity in video games at the time. In the early days of the console wars, every company was scrambling to find their own iconic mascot. Nintendo had Mario and Sega, well, Sega was still searching. Enter Alex Kidd, a character who was designed to be Sega's answer to Mario. But as we all know, things didn't quite pan out that way. Alex Kidd in Shinobi World, released in 1990, was Sega's attempt to reinvent their would-be mascot. The game was a side-scrolling action title that parodied Sega's own ninja-themed game, Shinobi. The mechanics were a departure from the previous Alex Kidd games, leaning more towards the gameplay of Shinobi. Alex Kidd was equipped with a sword, could perform wall-to-wall -wall jumps, and even transform into a flying fireball. 
the game was well received, with critics praising the blend of Alex Kidd and Shinobi elements. But it wasn't enough to cement Alex Kidd as Sega's mascot. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of Alex Kidd in Shinobi World is its context within Sega's history. This was a time when Sega was still trying to find its identity in the console market. They were experimenting with different ideas, trying to find one character that could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mario. Alex Kidd didn't quite hit the mark, but unlike Altered Beast or Golden Axe, he paved the way for the eventual arrival of Sonic the Hedgehog. Looking at the game itself, however, we should note its self-referential humor. Sega was essentially poking fun at itself, parodying one of its own games. This kind of meta-humor was not common in games at the time, and it showed that Sega was willing to take risks and not take itself too seriously. This playful attitude would become a hallmark of Sega's brand identity in the years to come. Finally, it's worth noting the game's mechanics. The shift towards a more shinobi-like gameplay was a bold move. It showed that Sega was not afraid to mix things up and experiment with different styles. This willingness to innovate and try new things is a trait that has the find Sega throughout its history. While it's not necessarily a game that we would put in a time capsule if we were alive in 1990, as your time capsule guide, it's my job to stick in a few notable exceptions to help make everything make sense. In the context of 1990, the year of its mysterious inclusion in the time capsule, Alex Kidd and Shinobi World represents a pivotal moment in Sega's history. It was a time of experimentation and searching for identity. While Alex Kidd didn't end up becoming the mascot Sega was hoping for, the game is a testament to Sega's spirit of innovation and willingness to take risks. It's a snapshot of a time when the console wars were just heating up and companies were still trying to find their footing. In the early 90s, amidst the fierce rivalry between Nintendo and Sega, the gaming industry witnessed the birth of an iconic character that would redefine Sega's identity. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sega was on a quest to create a mascot that could rival Mario, and after several attempts with characters like Alex Kidd and Flicky, they finally struck gold with Sonic in 1991. The creation of Sonic was a strategic move by Sega to establish a character that could not only resonate with gamers, but also encapsulate the essence of their brand. The conception of Sonic was a result of a unique blend of creativity and market strategy. Naoto Oshima and Hirokazu Yasuhara, the creators of Sonic, were tasked with the challenge of creating a character that could stand up to the NES and Mario. They wanted a character that was instantly recognizable, easy to draw, and could carry the weight of the company on its shoulders. The choice of a hedgehog was partly due to its form. A hedgehog could curl up into a ball, roll around, and do damage with its spiky covering, making it an ideal choice for a video game character. The creation of Sonic was not just about designing a character, it was about creating a narrative that would appeal to the audience. Oshima and Yasuhara created a backstory for Sonic, drawing inspiration from the American history of Sega and the trends of the early 90s, including a boom in environmental awareness. They created a story about a pilot nicknamed Hedgehog who loved to fly at high speeds, and his wife who wrote a children's book about a hedgehog based on her husband. This story became the premise of the original Sonic the Hedgehog game. The introduction of Sonic was a game-changer for Sega. It not only gave them a character that could compete with Mario, but it also helped them establish a strong presence in the gaming industry. Sonic became the face 
of Sega, representing the company's values and aspirations. The success of Sonic the Hedgehog played a crucial role in the console wars, helping Sega's Genesis console win out in the US against the brand new Super NES during the holiday sales war. This was a testament to the power of well-designed mascot and the impact it can have on a company's success. Super Mario World, released in 1990 alongside the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, was a game that truly redefined the platforming genre. It took the beloved Mario series to new heights with its vibrant graphics, expansive levels, and the introduction of a new character that would become a staple of the franchise, Yoshi the lovable dinosaur companion. Now let's talk about the game's overworld map. This was a significant departure from the separate levels that were common in games at the time. Instead, Super Mario World presented an interconnected world that players could explore freely. This design choice not only gave players a greater sense of agency, but it also added a layer of depth to the game with hidden secrets and shortcuts waiting to be discovered. This was a game that rewarded exploration and curiosity, and it set a new standard for what a platforming game could be. And then there was Yoshi. The dinosaur companion was not just a cute addition to the game, he fundamentally changed the way players approached each level. Yoshi could eat enemies, providing Mario with new ways to tackle obstacles and enemies. This mechanic added a layer of strategy to the game as players had to decide when and how to use Yoshi's abilities to their advantage. Yoshi was such a popular addition to the game that he has since become a staple character in the Mario franchise, appearing in numerous games and spin-offs. Super Mario World was originally going to be called Super Mario Bros. 4, but the developers decided to change the name to Super Mario World to emphasize the game's new features and setting. This decision reflects the game's ambition to break new ground and push the boundaries of what a Mario game could be. Street Fighter 2 was more than just a game, it was a revolution. It took the fighting game genre and turned it on its head, introducing an array of unique characters, each with their own distinct fighting styles and special moves. This was a game that was not just about button mashing. It was about strategy, precision, and understanding the strengths and weaknesses of your chosen character. It was a game that demanded skill and it rewarded players with a sense of accomplishment that few other games could match. Unlike many other games at the time, Street Fighter II didn't just offer different characters as a cosmetic choice. Each character had their own unique moves and abilities, and mastering them was a significant part of the game's appeal. This added a layer of depth and replayability to the game that was rarely seen in the genre at the time. It wasn't just about winning, it was about mastering your chosen character and learning how to use their abilities to outsmart your opponent. But perhaps the most revolutionary aspect of Street Fighter II was its introduction of special moves. These were powerful attacks that could turn the tide of a match, but they required precise input to execute. This was a game that rewarded skill and precision, and the inclusion of these special moves added a layer of strategy to the gameplay. It wasn't enough to simply attack your opponent, you had to know when to use your special moves and how to counter your opponents. This was a game that demanded not just quick reflexes, but also strategic thinking. Street Fighter 2 was also notable for its competitive multiplayer. This was a game that was meant to be played against others, and it offered a level of competition that was rare at the time. The thrill of facing off against another player, of testing your skills and strategies against theirs, was a major part of the game's appeal. 
It was a game that brought people together, fostering a sense of community and competition that would become a defining characteristic of the fighting game genre. In 1991, Sega finally found their mascot in Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic was part of a concerted effort to create a gaming mascot and a franchise that could compete with Mario and become one of the most recognizable gaming characters in the world. Sonic was part of an R&D project and was one of several potential mascot characters. The concept of a rabbit was clearly a star favorite and would ultimately become the Sega Mega Drive game Rystar. However, when Sega took these character concepts to New York and asked random people which they preferred, Sonic was overwhelmingly popular. Sonic was a game that was all about momentum, about maintaining your speed as you raced through the game's colorful levels. This was a departure from the more methodical pace of other platform games at the time, and it gave Sonic a unique identity. The game's levels were designed with this emphasis on speed in mind, with wide open spaces, loops, and ramps that allowed Sonic to maintain his momentum and reach incredible speeds. This focus on speed was not just a gimmick, it was a core part of the game's design and it fundamentally changed the way players approached the game. Sonic was a character with attitude, a stark contrast to the more wholesome image of Nintendo's Mario. This was a character that was cool, confident, and a little bit rebellious. Sonic's design was a reflection of the cultural trends of the early 90s, with his bright blue color, spiky hair, and red sneakers. This was a character that was designed to appeal to a younger, more hip audience, and it was a gamble that paid off for Sega. With Sonic, Sega's search for a mascot was finally over. They had found a character that could compete directly with Mario, and the console wars were truly on. The Genesis now had their edgy mascot. Nintendo had their increasingly family-friendly stable of games, and other companies like Graphics with Bonk were vying for placement. The success of Sonic the Hedgehog helped to boost sales of the Sega Genesis, and it helped to establish Sega as a major player in the gaming industry. Sonic's success also led to a slew of imitators, with other companies trying to replicate Sonic's success with their own fast-paced platform games. The gaming landscape was forever altered by the arrival of a horde of small, green-haired creatures known as Lemmings. This innovative puzzle platformer from DMA Design presented players with a unique challenge, guiding these hapless beings through a series of hazardous levels by assigning them specific tasks. The game's addictive gameplay, charming visuals, and clever level design made it a standout title, and its influence can still be found in countless games today. Let's start with the game's core mechanic, the lemmings themselves. These creatures were not your typical video game heroes. They were helpless, mindlessly marching forward regardless of the dangers ahead. It was up to the player to assign them tasks, such as digging, climbing, or blocking, to navigate the game's intricate levels. This mechanic was a breath of fresh air in a time when most games were focused on direct control of a single character. 
It added a layer of strategy and planning that was often missing from other games of the era. The game's original title was Snotlings, a nod to the Warhammer fantasy game. However, the developers decided to change the name to Lemmings, inspired by the real-life behavior of these creatures known for their mass migrations. But the game took some creative liberties with the Lemmings' behavior, most notably their tendency to commit suicide by jumping off cliffs. This was a myth popularized by a 1958 Disney documentary, and while it's not true in real life, it added a sense of urgency and tension to the game. The development of Lemmings was a testament to the creativity and innovation of the team at DMA Design. The game was born out of a simple animation created by Mike Daly while experimenting with deluxe paint. This animation, which showed a group of creatures following each other in a line, sparked the idea for the game's core mechanic. The two-player mode was inspired by then-current games Populous and Stunt Car Racer, adding a competitive element to the game's strategic gameplay. Lemmings was a commercial success, selling over 15 million copies worldwide. It was one of the most influential puzzle games of its its time, inspiring numerous sequels, remakes, and spin-offs. Its success also helped to establish DMA Design, which would later become Rockstar, the studio behind the Grand Theft Auto series. But perhaps the most enduring legacy of Lemmings is its impact on the puzzle game genre. The game's unique mechanic of assigning tasks to characters to navigate complex levels has been replicated in countless games since. It introduced a new way of thinking about puzzle games, one that focused on indirect control and strategic planning rather than direct action. Lemmings was a game that dared to be different. It took a simple concept guiding a group of creatures through a series of levels and turned it into a complex and engaging puzzle game. It was a game that challenged players to think strategically, to plan ahead, and to react quickly to changing situations. And it did all this with a sense of humor and charm that was uniquely its own. Final Fantasy IV was a game that truly marked a turning point for the Final Fantasy series and the role-playing genre as a whole. Prior to this, the first three Final Fantasy games, while innovative in their own right, felt like they were iterating on a formula. Each game was a step forward, but they were steps on a path that was already laid out. Final Fantasy IV, however, was a leap into the unknown. One of the most significant aspects of Final Fantasy IV was its introduction of the active time battle system. This was a game-changer for the RPG genre. Instead of the traditional turn-based system where players and enemies take turns attacking each other, the active time battle system introduced a dynamic element where the speed of characters could influence the order of attacks. This added a layer of strategy to the battles as players had to consider not just what actions to take, but when to take them. The story of Final Fantasy IV was another major departure from its predecessors. The game follows the story of Cecil, a dark knight on a quest to prevent the sorcerer Golbez from destroying the world. This was a far cry from the relatively simple narratives of the previous games. Final Fantasy IV had a complex plot with twists and turns, moral dilemmas, and a large cast of characters, each with their own unique abilities and backstories. This was one of the first times a video game had attempted such a deep and intricate narrative, and it set the standard for future RPGs. The game takes place on Earth, but it's an Earth unlike 
any we know. The world of Final Fantasy IV is split into a surface world and an underground world, each with its own unique environments, creatures, and cultures. This dual world design added a sense of scale and exploration that was unprecedented. Final Fantasy IV represents a time when games were starting to be recognized not just as a form of entertainment, but as a form of art. The innovations introduced in Final Fantasy IV, from the active time battle system to its complex narrative and world design were a testament to the creative potential of video games. It showed that games could tell deep, engaging stories and offer complex, strategic gameplay. And for gamers of that era, it was a glimpse into the future of what video games could be. Super Castlevania IV not only solidified the Castlevania series' reputation for challenging gameplay and gothic horror themes, but it also set the stage for future entries in the franchise. Super Castlevania IV was a game that pushed the boundaries of what was possible on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Originally intended for the NES, the game was ported to the SNES due to the NES's technical limitations. This switch allowed the developers to fully utilize the SNES's advanced hardware capabilities, resulting in groundbreaking graphics that were a significant leap forward from the original Castlevania games. One of the most notable advancements was the use of a technique called sprite scaling. This technique allowed for smooth animations of the game's characters and enemies, creating a level of visual fidelity that was unheard of at the time. Even today, the game's graphics hold up remarkably well, a testament to the skill and creativity of the developers at Konami. But Super Castlevania IV wasn't just a visual marvel, it also introduced several key gameplay features that set it apart from its predecessors. For the first time, our whip-wielding hero, Simon Belmont, could whip in eight directions, providing players with greater control and flexibility in combat. Holding down the attack button allowed Simon to flail the whip, a feature that added a new layer of strategy to the game by allowing players to block projectiles. The game also offered an enhanced retelling of the original Castlevania adventure, improving Simon's attack and movement capabilities while rebuilding all levels from scratch. A a significant portion of the game took place before reaching the main castle, adding depth and variety to the game's narrative and level design. However, what truly set Super Castlevania IV apart was its atmospheric soundtrack. Composed by Konami's legendary composer Michiru Yamane, the game's music is considered one of the best soundtracks in video game history. The haunting melodies perfectly complemented the game's gothic horror themes, creating an immersive experience that was as much a feast for the ears as it was for the eyes. 1992, the focus had moved from the charm of mascots to the raw power of hardware, and gaming giants Nintendo, Sega, and fresh-faced contender Sony were all vying for the top spot on the podium. This fierce competition sent a surge of energy through the industry, pushing companies to think outside the box and explore the limits of their technology. As a result, the gaming landscape became a breeding ground for innovation, fostering the rise of game design legends like John Romero, who would go on to leave their mark on the industry. During this time, we witnessed a shift in gaming 
main priorities. While mascots still held their ground, the focus was now on dazzling players with ever-evolving graphics, sound, and gameplay capabilities. Each company took a different approach in their quest for domination, leading to an array of unique games and experiences that challenged and captivated players around the globe. While 1991 had seen an explosion in mascot-driven gaming, 1992 brought us to the brink of a technological revolution. The race for supremacy was on, and there was no turning back. The industry was evolving at a breakneck pace, and gamers couldn't help but feel the exhilaration of this thrilling era. So as we journey back to the fast-paced world of 1992, let's ponder this question. If the competition between Nintendo, Sega, and Sony had never heated up, would the gaming landscape have developed as quickly or as creatively as it did. A Link to the Past was initially conceived as a direct sequel to the original Legend of Zelda, but the developers at Nintendo decided to make it a prequel instead. This decision opened up a world of possibilities, allowing them to create a new yet familiar world for our hero, Link, to explore. The result was a game world that was not just a series of separate levels, but an interconnected world that players could explore freely, discovering hidden secrets and unraveling the game's rich narrative at their own pace. One of the most significant introductions in A Link to the Past was the concept of parallel worlds. The game featured two distinct worlds, the Light World, which was ordinary Hyrule, and the Dark World, a corrupted version of the Sacred Realm created by the villainous Ganon. This dual-world mechanic added a new layer of depth to the game's puzzles and exploration, as players had to constantly switch between the two worlds to progress. Another notable addition to the game was the Master Sword, an iconic item that has since become synonymous with the Legend of Zelda series. The Master Sword, a powerful weapon that can only be wielded by a true hero, was essential for Link to defeat Ganon. The quest to acquire the Master Sword, which involved solving puzzles and overcoming challenges in various dungeons, was a central part of the game's narrative and gameplay. But A Link to the Past wasn't just about introducing new gameplay mechanics. It also pushed the boundaries of what what was possible in terms of graphics and sound on the SNES. The game's vibrant visuals, detailed environments, and memorable soundtrack created an immersive gaming experience that captivated players and set a new standard for action-adventure games. One interesting and overlooked aspect of A Link to the Past is the ability to customize your equipment's appearance. While the game doesn't offer much choice in this regard, there is a neat trick you can do to change the color of your shield from red to blue. All you need is a red shield and an ether medallion. It's a small detail, but it adds a touch of personalization to the game that was quite rare at the time. Wolfenstein 3D. This game, often hailed as the grandfather of first-person shooters, brought the genre into the limelight with its fast-paced action and a gripping narrative centered around Nazi hunting. Wolfenstein 3D was initially conceived as a sequel to Castle Wolfenstein, a game that the developers at id Software were fans of. They wanted to build on the original game's gameplay, but they also wanted to distance themselves from the original game's Nazi imagery. So they changed the name to Wolfenstein 3D, and in doing so, they created a game that was both a tribute to and a departure from its predecessor. This was one of the first games to use pseudo-3D graphics, a feat achieved through a technique called ray casting. 
This technique allowed players to move around in the game world in a way that had never been possible before, creating a sense of immersion that was revolutionary at the time. But the innovation didn't stop at the graphics. The gameplay mechanics of Wolfenstein 3D laid the groundwork for future FPS titles. The game's fast-paced action, combined with its addictive level design, set a new standard for the genre. It was a game that dared to push the boundaries, and in doing so, it helped to popularize the first-person shooter genre. It had no connection to the original Castle Wolfenstein games. In fact, they kind of, sort of, stole the Wolfenstein name from the makers of the original games, a small company called Muse Software. The guys at id were fans of those games, and they decided to do an homage to Castle Wolfenstein. This is a testament to the impact that the original games had on the developers at id, and it's a fascinating piece of gaming history that's often overlooked. Before they settled on the World War II theme, id considered doing a tribute to the movie Aliens, with a working title of It's Green and Pissed. This idea would later be revived after the success of Wolfenstein 3D and become Doom, another iconic game from id Software. Despite its success, Wolfenstein 3D was not without controversy. In 1992, the game was banned in Germany due to its use of Nazi iconography. This ban highlights the cultural sensitivities around the depiction of historical events in video games, a topic that remains relevant in the gaming industry today. Wolfenstein 3D was a commercial success, selling over 2 million copies worldwide. Its success helped to cement the first-person shooter genre as a mainstay of the gaming industry, and it's considered to be one of the most important games of all time. The video game industry was shaken to its core with the release of Mortal Kombat. Building on the success of fighting games like Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat took the genre to new heights with its digitized graphics, brutal gameplay, and the infamous fatality finishing moves. This controversial and wildly popular game didn't just spawn a long-running franchise, it inspired a whole generation of imitators. One of the most distinctive features of Mortal Kombat was its fatalities, a feature that was inspired by Japanese horror movies. The developers wanted to create a game that was both challenging and gruesome, and they felt that the fatalities would help to achieve that goal. These finishing moves, which allowed players to end a match in a spectacularly violent fashion, became a defining feature of the game. They were shocking, they were brutal, and they were unlike anything players had seen before. But the fatalities weren't the only thing that set Mortal Kombat apart. The game's blood and gore was another defining feature, although it was toned down for the home console versions to avoid censorship. In the arcade version, players could see blood and gore when they performed fatalities, but the home console versions replaced the blood with sweat and the gore with sparks. This change was a testament to the cultural sensitivities of the time, and it's a fascinating piece of gaming history. Mortal Kombat was a huge success when it was was released, and it played a significant role in popularizing the fighting game genre. But what's really interesting is that Mortal Kombat was created by only four people in just ten months. This small team, led by programmer Ed Boon and comic book artist John Tobias, was given the task of creating a fighting arcade game that would be ready for release in less than a year. The fact that they were able to create such a groundbreaking game in such a short amount of time is nothing short of remarkable. Another fascinating tidbit about Mortal Kombat is that it was originally based around Jean-Claude Van Damme 
Shazam. The game started when the producers of Universal Soldier approached Midway Games to create a game based on the movie, but Midway thought it would be more fun if they licensed Jean-Claude Van Damme on his own making a grittier game more like Van Damme's Bloodsport. But that deal fell through, eventually moving the martial arts tournament to the fictional planet of Earthrealm. Coming up with a name for the game was no easy task. It took the team six months to settle on Mortal Kombat, a title that was detested by at least one of the four designers. Names that didn't make the cut include Kumite, Dragon Attack, Death Blow, and Fatality. But in the end, Mortal Kombat was the name that stuck, and it's now one of the most iconic names in the history of video games. Mortal Kombat is a game that pushed boundaries. It dared to be violent, it dared to be controversial, and it dared to be different, and in doing so, it left its mark on the video game industry. It's a game that challenged our perceptions of what a video game could be, and it's a game that continues to influence the industry to this day. However, Mortal Kombat wasn't the only game that stirred controversy during this period. Night Trap, a game that was originally developed for the unreleased Nemo platform, also played a significant role in the discourse around violence and sex in video games. Despite being five years old by the time of its release, Night Trap quickly became a focal point of controversy due to its mature content. Night Trap was a game that was plagued with problems from the start. Its original platform, the Nemo, was cancelled, delaying the game's release by several years. When it was finally released, it was met with widespread criticism for its depiction of violence and sexual content. This led to a series of congressional hearings on the subject of video game violence, during which Nintendo famously stated that Night Trap would never appear on their platform. Ever. The controversy surrounding Night Trap was so intense that it was pulled from major retailers like Toys R Us and KB Toys, while Mortal Kombat stayed on the shelves and it was eventually withdrawn from the market entirely. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, Night Trap has remained a notable part of video game history. So why isn't Night Trip here in this time capsule? It's important to note that Night Trip's legacy is largely tied to its controversy, rather than its gameplay. The game itself is often regarded as, frankly, awful, and it frequently appears on lists of the worst games of all time. If not for the controversy it stirred, it's likely that Night Trap would have been forgotten. Mortal Kombat and Night Trap were both games that pushed the boundaries of what was considered acceptable in video games. They dared to be violent, they dared to be controversial, and they dared to be different. They challenged our perceptions of what a video game could be, and that continues to influence the industry to this day. The world of video games was introduced to a new kind of racing experience, Super Mario Kart. This game, the first in the beloved Mario Kart series, combined the charm of the Mario universe with the thrill of competitive racing. It was an innovative and wildly fun multiplayer experience that would go on to inspire countless sequels and spin-offs, as well as establishing the kart racing genre. Now, let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that Mario wasn't even included at first, and neither was racing. The game was originally conceived as a party game called Mario Excite Bike, which would have featured Mario and Luigi racing each other on motorbikes. However, the developers eventually decided to change the game to a kart racing game, and they added more characters such as Yoshi and Donkey Kong Jr. 
This decision to shift gears, pun intended, and include a wider cast of characters from the Mario universe was a game changer. It added a layer of familiarity and fun that made the game more appealing to a broader audience. Super Mario Kart was one of the first games to use Nintendo's groundbreaking Mode 7 graphics. This technology allowed for pseudo-3D environments, which made the game's tracks and obstacles look incredibly realistic. This was a significant leap forward in terms of graphics and gameplay, and it helped to make the game feel more immersive. In the Japanese version of Super Mario Kart, Princess Peach and Bowser celebrate a win by drinking champagne. This was removed from the American and European versions of the game due to concerns about alcohol references in a game marketed towards children. This cultural difference is a fascinating insight into the localization process and the different standards and sensitivities that exist in different markets. The game star was first imagined as Guy in Overalls, who wasn't Mario. During development, the game's prototype had a Guy in Overalls sitting in the cart as the team worked out racing mechanics. For several months, none of the developers specifically identified this blue-collar driver as the company's famous plumber. But Mario was too handsome to be denied. When they decided to see what it would look like with Mario in one of the carts, everyone thought that that looked even better. This little anecdote is a reminder of the iterative nature of game development and how iconic characters can emerge from the most unexpected places. Super Mario Kart was Nintendo's first title to let players take on characters such as Princess Peach and Yoshi outside of a platform-based game. This move turned out to be wildly popular among fans, which is led to a small galaxy of Mario Kart sequels, but also a wide variety of sports and fighting games. It also likely set the stage for Mario games to become the best-selling game franchise of all time. The gaming world was plunged into darkness. Not the kind of darkness that makes you fumble for the light switch, but the kind that sends chills down your spine and makes your heart race. Alone in the Dark was released, a game that pioneered the survival horror genre. Alone in the Dark took the familiar tropes of action-adventure games and added a twist a chilling, atmospheric narrative that kept players on the edge of their seats. The game was set in a haunted mansion, and players had to solve puzzles, explore, and fight off the undead to unravel the mystery of the mansion. It was a blend of horror, exploration, and puzzle solving that was unlike anything gamers had seen before. One of the game's most groundbreaking features was its use of 3D graphics and pre-rendered backgrounds. This was a significant departure from the 2D sprites that were common in games at the time. The 3D graphics and pre-rendered backgrounds allowed for a more realistic and immersive experience. They made the mansion feel like a real, tangible place, and they added a level of depth and detail to the game that was truly impressive. But the game's innovations didn't stop at its graphics. Alone in the Dark was also one of the first games to feature a survival horror gameplay style. This involved elements of puzzle solving, exploration, and combat as players worked to solve the mystery of the haunted mansion and survive the attacks of the undead. This gameplay style was a radical departure from the action-oriented gameplay of most games at the time, and it added a layer of tension and suspense that made the game 
even more engaging. Alone in the Dark was a critical and commercial success, and it is considered to be one of the most influential games of all time. It helped to popularize the survival horror genre, and is credited with inspiring many other games, such as Resident Evil and Silent Hill. The game's blend of horror exploration and puzzle solving, combined with its innovative use of 3D graphics and pre-rendered backgrounds, set a new standard for video games and paved the way for the survival horror games that would follow. A small, round, pink character bounced onto the scene and into the hearts of gamers worldwide. That character was Kirby, and the game was Kirby's dreamland for the Game Boy. This seemingly simple platformer would go on to spawn a franchise that's still going strong today, and it all started with this humble little game. Kirby's Dreamland was designed by Masahiro Sakurai, a name that would become synonymous with innovative game design. Sakurai set out to create a game that was accessible to everyone, regardless of their experience with action games. This philosophy is evident in the design of Kirby's Dreamland. The game is easy to pick up and play, with straightforward controls and a forgiving difficulty level. But for those seeking a challenge, the game also offers optional harder modes, adding depth and replayability. One of the most distinctive features of Kirby's Dreamland is its protagonist, Kirby. Unlike many video game heroes of the time, Kirby wasn't a muscle-bound warrior or a gun-toting action hero. He was a small, round, pink puffball. But what Kirby lacked in size and strength, he made up for in versatility. Kirby's primary method of attack is inhaling his enemies and then spitting them out as projectiles. This simple mechanic opened up a world of strategic possibilities as players had to decide when to attack, when to defend, and when to use their enemies' abilities against them. The game takes place in the whimsical Dreamland, a far cry from the grim, dystopian worlds common in many games of the time. Dreamland is a place of bright colors, quirky characters, and fantastical landscapes. This setting not only made the game visually appealing, but it also contributed to its overall charm and personality. Kirby's Dreamland, with its simplicity and charm, played a significant role in proving that handheld games didn't need to be complex to be successful. This was a game that was accessible to all, regardless of their skill level, and it was a perfect fit for the Game Boy console that was popular with a wide range of players, from hardcore gamers to casual players. In fact, Kirby's Dreamland's success was instrumental in bolstering the Game Boy's position in the handheld market. By 1992, the Game Boy had sold 10 million units, a figure that was significantly higher than its competitor, the Sega Game Gear, which had only sold 3 million units. This disparity in sales figures was a clear indication of the Game Boy's dominance in the handheld market, and games like Kirby's Dreamland played a crucial role in this success. The game's simplicity and accessibility were key factors in its success. It showed that a game could be simple without being simplistic, accessible without being easy, and charming without being childish. It was a game that welcomed all players, regardless of their skill level, or experience with video games, and it's a game that introduced us to one of the most enduring and beloved characters in video game history. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.